Hello again, Gary Zacharias with The Apologist Bookshelf. I've got something very different this time. It's a book called Unearthing the Bible. It's subtitled 101 Archaeological Discoveries That Bring the Bible to Life. The author is Titus Kennedy. And uh, I think it's worth uh, sharing this with you because it's, it's just eye-opening. Actually, speaking of eyes, it's got some wonderful pictures in here as well as descriptions. And uh, what Dr. Kennedy does is he presents 101 objects that have been found that give some amazing evidence for the historical reliability of Scripture. And he starts with, you know, the dawn of civilization. It goes up through the early church. So it's Old Testament and New Testament. He took these pieces from 50 museums, private collections, archaeological sites, and it's got some uh, just amazing insights into the ancient world. And I think it'll really bolster your faith. The president of Dallas Theological Seminary said, a much-needed resource for people serious about biblical studies. And I'm not even sure you need to be serious about biblical studies. If you just like the Bible, if you just want to find out what what connects the Bible to the real world, you'll get done flipping through this book. You may not read every single thing in here, but you'll get done, and you'll just be amazed. Your jaw's going to be hanging open. You'll find out there's way more actual proof and stuff in the dirt that uh, connects with the Bible than you thought possible. So from the early tablets that had to do with creation to things dealing with the life of Jesus, all sorts of archaeological support is shown here for the history that we learn in the scriptures. So who's Dr. Kennedy? He's a professional uh, in the field of archaeology. He's an adjunct professor, a research fellow at Discovery Institute, He's uh, been a consultant, a writer. He's been a guide for documentaries, and he directs archaeological projects in Bible lands now. So let me just take one section here. Um, so in other words, let's not think of the Bible as a myth or a legend or a fairy tale or propaganda. There's real evidence that we're going to explore just for these few pages. We're not doing the whole book, don't have the time. But I thought maybe it'd be interesting to go to the Old Testament and uh, find out that there actually is proof for the Jews being in the land of, of uh, Egypt. So I'm just starting on page 36 and it's a tomb of uh, Kunimhotep II and uh, had all sorts of elaborate wall paintings and they, they think roughly about 1800 BC, something like that. And it's a panel, uh, part of a wall painting depicts a group of nomadic Semites entering Egypt from Canaan. They have livestock and they have spices. You see men, you see women, kids, animals, supplies that are painted in great detail. And it, it's apparently a, a really good look into the life and the style of people from Canaan in the time of the patriarchs. And one of the characters, kind of cool looking, he has a multicolored tunic on. And apparently that was a fashionable and expensive piece of clothing from that time period from Canaan. Of course, we know the story of Joseph, son of Jacob. He had something similar to that. So this shows people migrating, coming into Egypt. And of course, that's what happened with Joseph and his family. So that gives you at least a kind of a hint or a picture of what was going on as groups of people came into the land of Egypt. But let's go to actually... The Israelites in Egypt. What do we have? Any evidence? 
Well, here's something that's called a papyrus Brooklyn, and it dates from something like 1600 years before Jesus, 1600 BC. And what's, to me at least, jaw-dropping is it contains an Egyptian list of domestic servants. Okay, so if you say, all right, that's interesting, domestic servants, ho-hum, let's move on. But is recorded on a papyrus. Well, here's the deal. There are not only Semitic names. Okay, that would give you a hint that, ah, so some of these servants came from Semitic places like Canaan. But there are Hebrew names. Hebrew names on this uh, papyrus. And this is dated from roughly after the life of Joseph and before the Exodus. And of course, what time was that? That's when the Hebrews lived in Egypt. They were settlers and then they were slaves. It has a list of 95 servants. And many of them are specified as coming from Canaan. They used to say Asiatic, and that meant Canaan. About 30 of these names, so you had 95 names, about 30 of them are Semitic. But what's so amazing is that nine of the servants have specific Hebrew names. And so uh, I'm not going to go through them all because I'll get my tongue all tangled on it. But there's even the name at the end there, the H, Y, then an apostrophe, then a B, then an apostrophe, then an R, W. What does that look like if you were to write it out? H, Y, B, R, W. It looks like Hebrew. And they think it's an Egyptian transcription of the word Hebrew. So here's a list that attests to the fact that there were Hebrews living in Egypt prior to the Exodus under Moses. And maybe prior to the total enslavement. So... And they've even got a picture of it, so you can see it here, the fragment. What else do they have? Well, they have a tomb mural that's roughly 1450 B.C. from the time of the pharaoh Thutmose III, and you see a bunch of slaves performing tasks for the Egyptians. And guess what they're doing here? They're making bricks using mud and straw. They put, it in, they put that combo in a mold, dry it in the sun, then transport it for use in construction projects. And it says that does seem to be what really happened in the times of the Egyptians there, that first you had a pharaoh that did not know Joseph, and then you got forced labor and other Semites. And they said that does seem to apply during the transition from the rule of a group of people called the Hyksos to the 18th dynasty. And then there was all sorts of forced labor that was required of Asiatics. And it says that they found some papyri, that specifies that immigrant people were subjected to compulsory labor, like public building projects, after the Hyksos had been kicked out. It was a foreign group of people that had come in and, and ran Egypt for a while. Well, that would be the exact time for the enslavement of the Hebrews. So how about that? That ties in very, very well. Let me take you to another uh, page here, 54 talking about the plagues. Do we have any proof? Do we have any idea that there were anybody talking about plagues at this time, considering how devastating that was to the Egyptians? Well, they have an ancient Egyptian text written by a man named Ipuwer, I-P-U-W-E-R. Sometimes it's called the Admonitions of an Egyptian Sage. And it's a poetic lamentation. It's a poem of sorrow addressed to the sun god Ra, and in the poem, the author describes a time where the natural order in Egypt got severely disrupted by death, destruction, and plagues. And they say it was probably composed somewhere in the 16th to 14th centuries B.C. They can't 
pin it down any closer to that. But it describes events that are very, very similar to the plagues in Exodus, and it was composed roughly in the time period as the Exodus. It's plausible that these two accounts, Exodus and this Ipawar poem, are independent accounts of the same episode, but from different perspectives. Well, how close is it? What kinds of things does the poem talk about? Well, it says the river, it becomes blood. There's blood everywhere. There's plague and pestilence throughout the land. Grain is destroyed. Diseases come and they cause physical disfigurement. There's death. There's mourning throughout the land. There's a rebellion against Ra, the sun god. There's death of children. The authority of the Pharaoh is being lost. The gods of Egypt are ineffective. They lose a battle. And then they say jewelry is now being possessed by the slaves. All of that is what the Exodus story tells. Now, did you know that? Did you know there was a papyrus that had those kinds of things in it? Now, does it absolutely prove it? No. But what an amazing uh, parallel there. So that's the Ipawer fragment, I-P-U-W-E-R. Now, who's the pharaoh of the Exodus? Well, there's a guess, best guess possible, is that Amenhotep II was probably the pharaoh of the Exodus, which occurred about 1446 B.C., best that people can tell. And what's interesting is that this pharaoh commissioned a stele, which is a stone that gets uh, written on, and he commissioned a stele be done to commemorate one of his campaigns. And he boasts in there that he went into Canaan and brought back over 100,000 captives to be used as slaves. Well, they have other Egyptian military campaigns of the period being reported. They don't bring back anywhere near that amount of captives. The largest that anybody ever boasted of was about 5,900. And so some scholars say, well, Amenhotep is really going out here. He's, that's a massive exaggeration. Now, this is roughly after the time of the Exodus. So Kennedy says, you know, it may be an indication of a need to replace the lost slave population of Egypt, or maybe it's propaganda to make it appear that the Pharaoh had recovered and everything was fine. So I think that's interesting as well. Here's one that uh, I got such a kick out of reading. It's called The Sphinx and the Death of the Firstborn. It's a stele again, a stone, that has a written, uh, things written on it. It's dated about 1400 B.C. They discovered it in Giza. And it's, so it's called the Dream Stele. Okay, they found it between the paws of the Great Sphinx when the sands were finally uncovered. You know, the sand had piled up for generations. And they finally saw this monument. And when they translated it, it seemed to have been the son of Pharaoh Amenhotep II. Remember, he's the one that they think is probably the Pharaoh during the Exodus. And so this is his son, who becomes Pharaoh Thutmose IV. Okay, so what's on this stele? Well, at the top is a illustrated the, uh, scene showing Thutmose offering something to the great Sphinx. And below that is a story. Now listen to this story. It's a stone inscription. It claims that while Thutmose was out hunting one day, he rested near the great Sphinx, fell asleep, and he had a dream in which the god of the Sphinx delivered a divine message to him. So he was told that if he cleared the sand from around the Sphinx, he would be given the kingship. 
Now, it says the inscription indicates he did not have a natural claim to the throne, so he had to come up with this divine promise to make it sound like he was more legitimate to be the next pharaoh. So scholars, having seen this, think this demonstrates that he was not the natural heir to the throne, but that something happened to his older brother, who was the firstborn and the original heir, and thus it allowed him to become pharaoh, because the, the one who was supposed to be the heir is gone. And it says, Thutmose did have an older brother named Amenhotep, but he mysteriously disappeared or died. So here's how it all fits together. If Amenhotep II was the pharaoh of the Exodus, then his firstborn son and heir, Amenhotep, would have died during the plague, which meant that the next son in line would take the throne. And then this younger brother is that Thutmose, who used this propaganda to claim that the gods would grant him uh, the kingship as a successor, to say, hey, see, it's really okay. It's The, the gods have told me that's all right. All right, how about this? Now, you got the children of Israel out of Egypt, and what do they do? They wander in the wilderness. Okay, well, they have found um, around 1400 B.C., they have found walls in a Egyptian temple and a, and a pillar, a temple pillar, and they found hieroglyphic inscriptions that mention land of the nomads of YHWH. What's that? That's the name of God. That's Yahweh. So this is in quotation marks. So this is literally on the walls. It says the land of the nomads of Yahweh. So they found these things uh, some time ago, and they've, in, they've uh, translated them. And it says they seem to be talking about a nomadic group that worshipped Yahweh and that their land was located somewhere in the Canaan area. And one of the inscriptions there lists a bunch of places and people that have been conquered by the Egyptians. And it says it shows a nomad prisoner with the name Land of the Nomads of Yahweh in the cartouche. Well, since the only people that are known to have worshipped Yahweh were the Israelites, it follows that this probably is a reference, as far as the nom these nomads go, to the Israelites before they settled in Canaan. So it says it's the earliest yet discovered reference to Yahweh, the personal name of God, in the Hebrew Bible. So these people were wandering these years uh, while conquering and finally settling Canaan. And to find that these are listed on a tomb from about 1400 shows that the Pharaoh and the Egyptians of that time period were familiar with the Israelites and their God. So again, amazing. All right, so at that point, I will stop because uh, that's the end of the chapter. But once again, this book is so neat to read because it's got the pictures with it. It gives you the history. It gives you roughly a time period. Let me just touch on a few things, and um, I won't have the time, but one chapter describes a piece of pottery with the name Goliath on it, and it was found in Gath, which was Goliath's town. Now, does this mean this is the Goliath from the Bible? Probably not, but it shows that that name was used at that time. Uh, further down, there's uh, King Jeroboam is mentioned. There's a Misha Stele that talks about David. All sorts of things are going on here. Uh, sieges, uh, Sennacherib. We've got information about the empires of Babylon and Persia. Uh, Hezekiah and the water tunnel. Then we get to Jesus and his world. We get to the first Christians and the early church. 
So it covers all sorts of history. You could just pick out what you like, but I know there'd be something in here that you'd enjoy. So again, the title is Unearthing the Bible, 101 Archaeological Discoveries that Bring the Bible to Life. I'd say so. It really does an excellent job. That's Titus Kennedy, who's the author. I bet you'd enjoy it. All right, well, thanks for tuning in, and we'll do another podcast later. Thanks. Bye-bye.